Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that as we look at it now, you'll speak to our hearts and to our minds and we ask that we'll respond in a way which is pleasing to you. Amen. Just a quick question for you. How many of you have been involved in work situations where you have KPIs, key performance indicators? Many of you. And you know that there can sometimes be a particular stress associated with the time when you need to audit how you're going with those KPIs. And my guess is that some of them are to do with money, some of them are to do with outputs in your business or maybe... Uh, particular things that you can measure in a school or in other places. Well, what do you do when it comes to a church? I know that some churches uh, do focus on certain KPIs. It might be numbers of people turning up. It might be those people uh, being involved in certain ministries within the life of the church. Uh, I know I just read recently during the week somebody was answering a question as to what a good KPI is for numbers of visitors who end up becoming members of the church. And there was a bit of a discussion as to whether it was one in four and one in five. Um, let me tell you, I find those things leave me a little bit cold. Uh, there's something that's kind of outside of our scope, outside of our control. And I'm not sure that it's really often that helpful. And another way of thinking about it that I commend to you is to think about key health indicators. And now some of you will know of key health indicators in your line of work. Have some of you used that as well? No? No? Oh, one, two? Uh, not just if you're in the health industry. Uh, but it's helpful to think as we consider church, what makes for a healthy church? How would we measure a healthy church? Now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you the opportunity just to uh, think a little bit yourself, maybe talk with the people just immediately near you. What are some of the indicators of a church being healthy? And then justify your answer with reference to scripture. So I'll give you a minute or so to do that. What are the indicators of a healthy church? And justify your answer by the Bible. Okay, that's long enough. Um, who's brave enough to share some of the, uh, the indicators of a healthy church that you talked about? We'll have a crack. Okay. Pardon? We'll have a crack. Oh, I thought you said something else. Um, you'll have a crack, okay. What would I have said? Never mind. Okay, so healthy church, welcoming church, and the message of the gospel for everybody. Yep. Okay. What other things? Yep. I think interaction. We don't just come to church, sit and watch a show. Uh, we come here to interact with the other people that are in the church, and if we're not interacting, then it's not a church. Okay. So interaction at church, and you've got some Bible reference for that. 
Come on, mate, you give out Bibles for a living. Yep. Yeah. You got a reference? James chapter 1, yeah. Caring for the widows and the fatherless, yeah. Bible teaching and from 1 Timothy. Yep. Yep. Um, good tree bears good fruit, so if there's good fruit, we're growing. Okay, so a good tree produces good fruit, so should we expect to be growing? Yeah, growing. Um, growing is an interesting word, isn't it? You can be growing in numbers, you can be growing in maturity, you can be growing in godliness, you can be, yeah, so they're good things to explore. Yep. Prayer. Prayer. All right, okay. Yes, if Jesus prayed, then we should pray. Yep, yep. Yep. Kat? So interacting with grace and love towards each other in church, yep. Yeah, and Ben? Yeah, so discipleship, coming in to know Christ and growing up in Christ. Where would you find something about discipleship? Um, well, I just go, I guess you go to Matthew 28, go and make disciples as a yep. mission, but also um, Romans 12, the renewing of the mind, growing Yeah, 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 great. Okay, um, yes, just quickly. We're told not to stop meeting together. Not to stop meeting together, yes, and that's in Hebrews chapter 10. This is 19 to 25. Yep, one more. Uh, a good spiritual, spiritually mature leadership. Spiritual. There's uh, probably 1 Timothy 4, 16. Guard your life in the doctrine. Yep. So a, a, a leadership in a church that are on the ball and, and do guard those things and protect them. Yeah, watching your life and doctrine so that you might save yourself and your hearers. Uh, Paul's words to Timothy. Yeah, look, there's great stuff. Great stuff. And um, I'm going to read now from 1 Thessalonians 5, these two verses. And as I read these, uh, just think about what Barb read from Romans 12. Because it's not an esoteric, unusual, just for the Thessalonians uh, teaching, this. Uh, It really is an overlap with what was said in Romans chapter 12. And we'll come to that as well. So here we've got it, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters... Warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everybody else. Now, the first thing that I want to highlight as we look at this, and I think it does go to this whole question about the health of a church, is that this is not just addressed to the pastors, leaders, elders, ministers, deacons, church staff, or whatever terms you may be familiar with. This is not just for leadership. Uh, He's going to be encouraging all the Christians in the church in Thessalonica to be involved in these things. 
And he flags that very, very clearly by saying, we urge you, brothers and sisters. Now, it, I'm going to say a couple of things about the original language here. The original language is just brothers, but I think that the English translators in recent times have captured it by saying brothers and sisters. There's nothing particularly masculine about this. He's writing, however, to the body of believers. And 1 and 2 Thessalonians are the, are the letters of Paul in the New Testament that contain the most clear references to the brothers and sisters. I've given you all the references there. Um, it starts back in chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, For we know, brothers and sisters, 2 verse 1, you know, brothers and sisters, uh, 2 verse 4, we're not trying, I'm sorry, 2 verse 9, uh, surely you remember brothers and sisters, or 14, for you brothers and sisters. And you just see this again and again and again. In fact, 14 times he addresses them, but you or you brothers and sisters. Um, he's recognising as he addresses the church their family relationship. They are connected to each other. They're in the family of God and he addresses them as such. Now, there are two other references where he talks to them about how they're to treat the brothers and sisters. But for the most part, for you English teachers, this is in the vocative. It's brothers and sisters, do this. In the same way that uh, someone might stand up here and say, Salt Church, do this. He's reminding them they're part of God's family, saying brothers and sisters, do this. It's a letter to the church and not a letter via the leaders to the church, but directly to them. And I think that that is a very key aspect of health in a church. That is, there's an understanding that it's all of us in this all together. And with that in mind, um, we could be tempted, I think, as you look at some of these instructions to think, well, surely that's the leader's job to do these things. But we need to see that he's addressing it to the congregation. First thing then, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Now, he, he um, could be picking up on the earlier comments in chapter 4. Remember that about people who aren't working, they're, uh, they're depending on those around about them for their food and, and lodging and whatever it might be. It could be that he's summarising at the end of the letter some of the things that he said, and I think that's a reasonable idea. Um, but we don't know exactly why he says this here. Uh, when he says to warn those who are idle and disruptive, literally he's saying warn those who are out of line. Warn those who are not living the way that they should be living. Warn those who are out of step with each other. Now, of course, being out of step with one another could be uh, because they're not working when they should be working, because they're actually relying on their brothers and sisters rather than contributing themselves. But whatever it is, it, it is disruptive. They're, they're causing disruption in the church. Now, it could be that people are just doing their own thing. And he says to the church, you need to warn people who are living like that. 
I remember one time at the last church that I was at, which is called Stromlo, because it was at the base of Mount Stromlo in Canberra, we had a number of people in our congregation who were madly enthusiastic about mountain biking. And, and there was a guy who stood up one time at, at church, I think he was leading the service, and he had to explain why he was regularly away from church, why he didn't make it very often. It was because of his commitment to mountain biking and there was some discussion about why he was doing that because he was involved in a particular type of racing that always happened on Sunday mornings. And somebody came and raised it with me. The question as to whether someone should be up the front speaking about things and leading church if they were never there or rarely there because they were always mountain biking. He thought it was my job to warn him, to actually admonish him. But 1 Thessalonians says that it was his job. It would have been good for him to encourage his brother to be more regular at church or to understand why it was that he was not able to make it on a regular basis. See, as you think about the congregation, do you feel that you have a responsibility to be encouraging your brothers and sisters as part of the church? Because sometimes that might mean warning people, warning people that there are dangers in living a particular way. I think one of the dangers that I've seen over the years is when parents take a very kind of lackadaisical view about church and you know there's a whole range of things that can take up our time and and if it's not important to the parents it probably won't be important to the children and so it's a good thing for us to talk about that fantastic for us to hear about technology and good uses of smartphones and tablets and computers and screens and it might be that one or more of you are, have particular issues in this area and it would be good to be encouraging one another or warning one another. But it's something that we can do for each other if we recognise these things matter. He goes on to say, encourage the disheartened. Comfort, strength, encourage those who are faint-hearted, and again, if this is a summary, it might be that they're struggling uh, because of Christ not having returned and some people having died already. That might be a reason that some are disheartened. Uh, it could be that they're overwhelmed by the opposition that they're facing. He's talked about that as well. Again, we're not told specifically why the people are disheartened. But it is easy to get overwhelmed. And there might be times when people are doing it tough and really struggling. Maybe they're weighed down with doubts. Maybe there are other issues in life that are just making it really difficult to continue as a believer. We are to encourage one another, to encourage the disheartened. I think one way that we can do that, and we'll, we'll certainly talk about this a lot next week, is to be praying for each other to be aware of what's taking place in our lives so that we can encourage through prayer and come before God and ask him to be encouraging those people. Help the weak, he says. Again, we're not told anything more than this. These are very kind of um, punchy commands, aren't they? They're almost staccato-like, just bang, 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 bang. And 
he says to help the weak. We don't know if this is the physically weak. Might be that you know, some people are struggling with sickness or injury. Or is this the mentally weak, those who are easily tossed around and, and led astray? Is this the spiritually weak, the people whose consciences are, are especially tender? We don't know. But for each other, there is opportunity and the encouragement to be helping those who are weak. I guess we look to do that here at SALT. Um, the weakness might be that it's the toughness of just having given birth to a baby and, and all of life being disrupted and lack of sleep and, and this sort of thing. So we, we help out by providing some meals. Or it might be that the weakness is a, is a knee that's gone or a, or a foot that's been broken or something else that's happened and we help each other out. But there might be things that are a little bit less easy to see. There might be things going on in life that require us to ask questions and have a conversation and explore together. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Um, I, I love the actual word behind this, be patient. There's a normal word for patient that Paul uses almost all the time. And then there's this word, which is literally in the original, long-tempered. I've never heard that before. Long-tempered. We all know what short-tempered is. Paul's saying, be long-tempered. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because like with patience, you can have patience to put up with trying circumstances. Like you, there's a car broken down, down the highway, and you're stuck and you're not going anywhere. But the word that he uses here is not for trying circumstances. It's to do with interpersonal relationships. That is to be long-tempered with each other, uh, to work hard at, at getting along with each other. I've heard some people say that they don't suffer fools gladly. You heard that statement? Um, you know, don't put up with nonsense from anybody. Don't suffer fools gladly. I think what Paul's saying is suffer fools gladly. I think that's what he wants us to do, to be long-tempered, to be patient with people, um, and some people are really, they kind of push it, don't they? I mean, if they want us to be patient with them, then they should be nice. They should be easy to get along with. They, they should be the people that we want them to be, but you don't have to be patient with people like that, do you? No, to be long-tempered. Well, I remember um, as I was looking at this, there was, there was a couple... Um, I don't want to give too much away. I'll call them Tom and Susie. And, and Susie was the most friendly, encouraging, upbeat person you could imagine. Tom, I used to call him um, Marvin the Paranoid Android. Um, for those of you who might have read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, everything was dour. Everything was a problem. Everything was not the way that it should be. And um, Susie, she led the music team. Yeah, it was great. Tom, he managed the sound desk. And it was awful. And I can't remember why I'm telling you that. 
Yes, I can. It took, it took a, a lot of long-temperedness to cope with Tom. Yeah. I said Tom. Yeah. Okay. Um, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Uh, make sure that's literally see to it. Uh, and again, it, it, just putting that in there, see to it that he's not addressing the leaders. He's addressing the congregation. So guys, see to it that nobody pays back wrong from wrong. And I guess as you see to it, you would First, look at yourself and make sure that you're not driven by revenge. But there might be times when you need to have a word to somebody else to encourage this to be a congregation where people look out for each other. And he's picking up on the teaching of Jesus, isn't he? Um, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you. And, and then he expresses the ultimate of this by being loving towards your enemy. Um, and that's what he goes on to talk about. See that? But always strive to do what is good for each other. Always. Whatever the situation. Always strive. Just work at it. Commit yourself to it. To doing what is good for the other. Not, not wrong, not revenge, not demanding justice. But showing mercy. Being patient not giving people what they deserve. And then finally, he says, to make sure that no one pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what's good for each other and for everyone else. See, as, as Paul addresses them, much of this has to do with the relationships inside the church, brothers and sisters committing themselves to each other, but he also says, and for everyone else. And so we're called to seek the good of our community, uh, to, to do good, to be committed to our neighbours uh, and looking for opportunities to bless those people around us. So what do we make of all this? Right? These, these kind of punchy commands that he has. Warn the idle, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure you don't pay back wrong for wrong, Strive to do what's good always and do that for one another and do it for everyone else. Why is he giving these commands and, and how do they work? Well, I think what he's talking about is being absolutely radically different to the people around about us. He's talking about being completely countercultural. He's talking about what doesn't come naturally, but can only come about supernaturally. If I was to simply say, this is the way that you should live, and leave it without any context, I would be doing you a massive disservice, and I would ultimately be preaching a lie. Because you can't do this stuff. 
You can only do what God enables you to do. And so it's fundamentally important for us to look at these verses in the context of the letter. And the letter begins in chapter 1 by reminding us that these people have heard the gospel and they've responded to the gospel by putting their trust in Jesus and turning back to God. And we see in chapter 1 and verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Their response was a, a spirit-given response. And one of the reasons I, I asked Barb to read Romans 12 rather than read 1 Thessalonians 5 is because Romans 12 just shows us very, very clearly that what Paul's talking about with these changed behaviours and attitudes is what is to flow from understanding the gospel. So in, in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. And then he goes on to say, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then the rest of the chapter spells out what that will look like. Humility. Using your gifts to serve. Loving one another, encouraging one another. The one another word keeps popping up, honouring one another above yourself, being devoted to one another in love and so on. You see, it flows from the gospel. The gospel transforms how we see ourselves and then that issues in how we treat one another. So if you've been gripped by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and God has come into your life by the Spirit, then what he wants to produce in you is a radical, changed way of viewing your brothers and sisters, where you take responsibility for each other and you spur each other on and you encourage each other and you warn each other and you help one another. And you've got a lot of patience with each other. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. There'll be times when it will be difficult. But God's in the business of transforming people and making that happen. That's not my job to make these things happen. It's not Nathan's job. It's, it's not Marty's job. It's not Emily's job. It's not one person's job to make these things happen. Paul's addressing brothers and sisters. And as I teach this, I, I want to say, brothers and sisters, it's salt. If you've gripped, if you've been gripped by the good news of Jesus, and if you know how much God has given you and how long-suffering God has been with you, and how committed he is to warning you and to spurring you on and to encouraging you and to shaping you and to directing you, then let's share that with each other. Let's be here for one another. Let's spur each other on. You see, 
A healthy salt church needs you. Every one of you and me. A salt church needs every one of us. As we come to Christ, we get brought into a family with each other. And we're to be here for each other. And yes, that'll have all kinds of practical outworkings in terms of turning up and participating and interacting, noticing, asking, seeing what's going on for one another, making inquiries, looking out for each other, exploring how you can serve one another, thinking about how people are going and who might be missing out and who might be struggling and who might be straying. It's pastoral care for one another that's on view. We're all here to do the work of ministry. If you're a Christian, you've been called to Christ so that you might love your brothers and sisters. And that's a great privilege. Can you help? Can you encourage? Can you seek the welfare of those sitting around you? Of course you can. From time to time at Salt, we ask people to be involved in serving in a ministry team. And many people put their hands up and help out with the tech or help out with supper or help out in the children's ministry, help out up front, help with music and help in different ways. And the temptation might be to think that if you've got a job you can serve, if you don't have a job there's nothing for you. But I hope that this passage makes it clear that nothing could be further from the truth. We can all serve and we don't need a job to do it. We do need to be a brother or a sister. So if you come to Christ, then let's serve. Thanks.